every single, there is not a person who is not born without a specific call on their life. And knowing that every single human being has a unique capacity to matter in this world informs how I see every human being. I think my personal opinion is the five most important words you could ever say to a human being are what I see in you. Hey, welcome to Fred Talk, inspiration and truth from a friend. In our podcast, we teach principles of success. Our goal is to inspire leaders to unlock their full potential, live out their strengths, and achieve their God-given purpose in life. Today, I have a special guest with me, Dave Rodriguez. Uh, Dave has been a friend and a mentor for probably 25 years in my life, and uh, Dave pastored for about 40 years uh, on the East Coast and then in Indiana and pastored one of the largest churches in Indianapolis area, Grace, and just grew that church uh, and had multiple locations and and really mentored a lot of other leaders. And I was part of um, being able to be privileged to be mentored by Dave uh, many times. And and then now Dave is retired and his uh, son is leading that church. And now he has um, some other work he's doing um, that I'll let him share also called Destiny Works. And so, Dave, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I'm glad, glad to be here, Fred. Thanks for inviting me. So, Dave, you, you've had a major impact on my life and, and I know on thousands of other people, both as a pastor and also as a leader in, in just so many ways. And can you just maybe tell us a little bit about your journey as a entrepreneur? You, you planted a church and and you've led um, things. You're leading another work now. And can you just tell us a little bit about your journey um, in that? Yeah, <clears throat> um, 42 years in, in pastoral work, um, and the last 30 of which were with Grace Church, roughly 29 years with Grace Church that um, we planted in 1991. Um, so when in June of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I didn't it's interesting. People ask me all the time, how's retirement? I, I didn't retire so, <laughs> at all. I'm, I stepped away from, from 42 years of pastoral ministry, but then I launched Destiny Works. So I I'm not retired. I mean, it's a full-on full on job uh, developing this new, um, new venture. I've been at it three years. So I started a church and then I started a business. And tell us about your uh, business, Destiny Works, and your heart and passion behind what that is. Yeah, well, Destiny Works centers around the word destiny. And about 12 years before I uh, stepped away from pastoral ministry, I had developed a process, um, a system, and a passion to help people figure out their calling. And it all started one day when we had a uh, we had a bunch of in about 20 interns one summer at the church and they wanted to know how do you how, how do you know your calling in this world how do you know your destiny and so that started us i, I wanted to be able to help people figure that out and eventually developed a system that um, um that helps people figure that out and right when i was getting ready to transition from pastoral ministry um i was trying to figure out can i do that i mean is this something that a whole new venture could be built around and uh, one of the guys who had just retired from the Indianapolis Colts, NFL player, came to me and he knew I was thinking, he and I were friends, and he, he knew I was thinking about this. He said, well, there are about six of us who just retired from the NFL. Could you help us figure out our calling now? Mm -hmm. So I began to work with them um, and, sent, and that has developed into, I've, I've done personal coaching with soccer moms and CEOs and NFL players, and then, um, uh, 
CEO of a national men's fraternity, collegiate fraternity approached me and one thing led to another. And he said, could you take your calling coaching and turn it into a workshop for all the guys around the country? So now I, I work with uh, Alpha Tau Omega and travel around to campuses and speak at their chapters um, on how to figure out your calling and your destiny. Um, that has led into some other ventures within the business. I now do executive coaching of a number of guys, mostly in the uh, nonprofit realm, um, starting with helping them figure out their calling because just about every leader at some point asks the question, who am I now? Mm-hmm. What, what do I do? What do I do with my life? If, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Strength to Strength by Albert Brooks, from going from strength to strength, but he makes a big point that at age 35, in just about every way you measure entrepreneurial skills, you start to decline. Mm. And they grow to age 35 and entrepreneurs hit their peak at 35 and then they start downhill and then they are start realizing they're losing their relevance as well. And at 40 or 45, they have a freak out going, who am I now? Um, and so that I spent a lot of time with guys, men and women in that age range trying to figure out who they are now. So that's what Destiny Works is about. Mm. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. I, I wanted to ask you, you, you have been tremendously successful in whatever you've done. Um, you know, your church grew to thousands and, and was very effective at your mission, a, able to mobilize people, um, transform their lives. And, and you know, we know that God has to be at work at that, but there's a part that we play in that too with him. And so could you talk a little bit about why you think You've been so successful in what you've done. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard question to answer to analyze um, because it's it's fraught with. Well, was I successful? I mean, um, other people we measure other people many times by numbers, um, by what is observed, what it looks like. Does it look like it's it's thriving? Um, so it's hard to answer the question. I, I will say that my personality is such. I'm a three on the enneagram which means um, there is, I'm always about taking the next hill. Um, The good news about that is that I can, um, part of the success that I've seen is a desire to rally a bunch of people to take the next hill. Um, The downside of that is it wears people out. So that which might lead to success, which I think a lot of megachurch pastors, for instance, are, um, they're zealots. And I mean that in a neutral sense, not in a negative sense. In other words, there's, they're full of zeal, they're full of passion. And as a result, they rally people to success. And again, you could point to that and say that that's probably how we got some to how we where we were, but it also wears people out along the way. So what maybe have been successful also um, tends to, uh, for people who are not driven like that, it can be hard for them. So there's a down, there's a downside to, to pushing for success. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I would venture to say that there's a lot of people in the business marketplace that are very similar too. Yeah. They're very zealous, very passionate, very driven, and they, they, they're they able to mobilize people and can wear people out. So thinking about, you know, when you're wired like that and you're wired to make an impact and to influence people, and that's just who you are and, and mm-hmm. you're trying to live it out, what principles maybe did you discover along the way so that the debt that didn't become the downfall that it can be on, on that side. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, again, it's all a matter of opinion. Some people would probably look at me and say, well, it did become a downfall. I mean, the people who are the experienced the being burned out, they'll say, I just like, I had one pastor who worked for me said to me, I just can't keep up with you. And, 
And, you know, my, my initial reaction was, wow, that's cool. Uh, and, and, it's, and then I realized, no, that's stupid. I mean, that's not, that's not healthy. Um, I think the key to my life in dealing with, with the drivenness is having, was having the right people around me to, uh, to not BS me and to call out what they see, starting with my wife. Um, my wife loves me, but she is not enamored with me. Um, and she is, um, she has the most finely tuned BS meter of anyone I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and so she smells it a mile away. Anything that's inauthentic, she calls me on it. Anything that is overly aggressive, she calls me on it. Um, so it's been absolutely crucial to have a partner in life who is willing to do that. I think secondly, uh, the rest of my family is similar, my daughter and son, um, and then the mentors in my life. And I, I, I believe in a constellation of mentorship. I think it was, I don't know if it was Bobby Clinton or whoever came up with the idea that um, it's key to have a, a raft of mentors. You obviously, at least a person is a generation beyond you. Uh, and then co-mentors who are in your world and outside of your world, who, and then you mentoring somebody, that whole constellation basically keeps an eye on you. Um, I've had a mentor, he's 82 years old right now. Uh, we've met, we're meeting this week. We've met every, roughly every month for 32 years. Mm. And he's one of those guys that all, as always uh, has a finger on the pulse of my life and is able to give me a reality check. So I think that those people have been instrumental in um, in tamping down my zealotry. Mm. Mm. That's really helpful. So do you find yourself as you, I, I'm assuming that you have lots of visions and lots of um, uh, ideas and things constantly that are coming through your head and your mind. Um, do you, when you, how do you filter those things? Do you, um, do you, how do you articulate between, you know, you wake up early in the morning and you just got thoughts rolling in your head or, or you see something in your mind that could be a possibility? How, how do you discern what to go after? Do you have written goals and dreams? Do you, uh, what, what's, do you have kind of a little process you use with that? Uh, I've always been, um, I've always practiced as best I could a level of self-awareness. Uh, almost every day, a portion of my morning is spent in, some people would call it, it's just, just, being, just paying attention to my life. Um, I, usually can, I usually can then filter things at that moment along with the help of others. But I am... My, I contend that the more a person pays attention to their life, the more they're aware of what their next step should be. Most people don't take the time to pay attention to their life. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, the Christian, prevailing Christian culture is a driven Christian culture. And once I stepped away from leading in that culture, I have to tell you that my aspirations are far more centered around less about, um, I don't want to impress anyone anymore. I don't desire to impress anyone. I don't, 
I don't care for accolades. Things have changed dramatically in my life. And so I would have answered that question differently five years ago, if you would have asked it, than today. Today, my aspirations are, I want to enjoy life, but at the same time, I want to work within my calling um, to leave a legacy. And really, that's what drives me now. Um, so it's, it's, I'm not looking for the next big thing anymore. I just, I'm looking for that thing that I'm here for. So with that in mind, what, what would you say you are most proud of in your life at this point? Literally at this moment, right now in history, Henry and Piper, my grandchildren, uh, I should say, and Isabella and Jude and Anya, my adopted grandchildren. That's what I'm most proud of. Um, it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. I believe legacies are always seen in name with names and faces. I think, I don't think legacies are going to be necessarily movements or buildings or programs. I think it's going to be in names and faces. And when I can identify a person who says, I think I'm different because of you and they have a name and a face, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Relational meeting with people. Well, actually, the person, it's not just, it's not just, I'm not proud of that I have a relationship with a person. I'm proud of the fact that something in my life, something I said, something I did, some influence I had caused their life to be different as a result of my input. So some sort of transformational thing, no matter how small, that's what I will hang my hat on and say, I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that. How about, what would you say you're most thankful for? Did I mention Henry and Piper? And <laughs> um, thankful for, I'm, I am most thankful for the enduring relationships that I've been allowed to have. Mm. That's what I'm most thankful for. Um, in the grand thankfulness to God, that's what I'm most thankful for, are those relationships. Um, and, the, and, and honestly, the opportunity to have the presence of mind and physical health enough to lead organizations for the last 45 years um, and do so at a fairly high energy. So I'm thankful for that too. So what would you say your top strength is? Uh, right now, uh, I would say, right now, my, I think my top strength is the ability to deliver wisdom to people who need it at a particular time. Um, again, Albert Brooks in his book, From Strength to Strength, says that one of the transitions that leaders have to go through is away, away from this entrepreneurial gift that, um, that is creating things to a new form of offering to the world that is more like you become a library that people can receive from. And I think right now that's probably one of the strongest gifts I have is the ability to um, go back into the library of the last, I'm 65 years old, go back into, uh, what am I saying? 67 years old. Go back to the library of those 67 years and draw out of it the wisdom that a person needs. Hmm. So now let's talk about the flip side. <clears throat> How have you managed your weaknesses? Again, the assumption is that I have. Uh, you're assuming <laughs> I have managed my weaknesses. Um there are times my weaknesses have managed me. There are times I have transcended my weaknesses. 
Um, there is a mystical spiritual side of it where I believe God has sometimes has grace on us to be able to, when we pray and deliver us from temp evil one temptation and delivers from the evil one, he does. So uh, some of the management of, of that is, I think, purely the grace of God. Again, I think having the people around me um, and being willing to hear truth, that helps manage uh, my weaknesses. Um, also, again, because I, I, one of my number one practices is to pay attention. I'm trying to head them off before they overwhelm me. So paying attention to them when I notice that I've got a weakness that's, that's uh, dominating me. Be, at least paying attention and realize what do I need to do to, to work through it. So I think a big part, you mentioned it, of staying healthy and taking care of yourself and, and being able to be aware and those types of things is how you take care of yourself, physically, mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Can you talk to us a little bit about your rhythms of how you do that? Yeah. Well, I, I would say I believe that there are six, when you look at the my overall, my overall well-being, this is what I help leaders with too. The overall, overall well-being of a human being and a leader centers around six areas of my life that I focus on. One is the, my physical body. Number two is my mental slash psychological slash spiritual well-being or emotional. Number three is the order of my world and my ability to be uh, have focus. The fourth is relational. The fifth is financial. And the, and the sixth is around purpose. And so... Any self-assessment I'm doing, I am looking at those six areas and saying, are is there anything in each any of these areas that is out of whack that needs adjustment? And so, yes, I keep a list of goals. Yes, I um, that I shouldn't say I start with I start with dreams. What do I wish for this area of my life? What is my dream? Okay, if that's my dream, what are the one or two goals I could focus on for this season, just these next three months? And then what are the habits that need to change so that I can adjust, uh, I can address those, those few goals for the season. That's a pattern I continue to follow. So starting big picture of what's going to really bring the most health or fulfillment or, and then breaking it down. Oh yeah. And not, and not over, not with an overwhelming amount of data. Some people come up with strategic life plans that are so overwhelming. They just, they can't keep them. I think, I think it's important to re, I re, re, revisit my personal strategic plan every season, spring, summer, fall, winter, and adjust as necessary. You mentioned a couple of different times about the importance of mentors uh, or coaches in your life. And can you just talk to us a little bit about how that developed for you? Did you seek it out? Did it, um, you know, what, what, what's that looked like uh, yeah. through the years? Well, Charlie, my the one I call my mentor um, that we've been meeting for every, roughly once a month for the last 30 plus years, he approached me 32 years ago and he said, do you want to get a cup of coffee? And I was like, no, I really don't like you, which I didn't. <laughs> um, but I had coffee with him and then walked away and he contacted me, said, do you want to get together again? I was like, seriously, really? Well, 32 years later, uh, when he passes, I will probably grieve his loss more than I grieve my own father. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the kind of relationship we have. It started with his initiative. Um, any, and then the mentors, the, those who I've mentored, and then the co-mentors of my life. As far as I'm concerned, mentorship, the, 
starts with a desire. Do I need these kind of relationships in my life? And the answer should be, of course. And the second thing is, how do I find them? You ask. That the bottom line is you ask somebody. You find somebody that you find appealing or that you think benefit, and you walk up and you ask them, hey, can I mentor you or will you mentor me? That's how it happened. And Charlie just went out of his way, just kept pestering me. Um, that's how mentorships get started, is somebody takes the somebody takes the initiative. And that's how it started with every one of my mentoring relationships. So, you know, when we go through our life, we all deal with um, failures and mistakes and setbacks. If you were to just kind of reflect on how you deal with that, what's kind of your primary way of viewing that? How do I deal with mistakes, setbacks, failure? Uh, many times not very well. Most of the time, not very well initially. I'm not very resilient. Um, my resilience comes with work. It doesn't come naturally. Mm. And so, um, when, for example, when I stepped away from the pastoral role, for the first year and a half, of course, we were in the middle of the pandemic, so it was like a bizarre time. Um, I went through a very, very dark time in my life. Very darkest time of my life, hands down, no question. And I realized along the way, uh, the number of traumas, some tiny traumas and some major traumas that I experienced in 42 years of, of my work up to that point. Mm -hmm. And so it started dealing with the failures, the setbacks, and some of the, by the way, I should say some of those traumas were self-imposed. They weren't something, not all that people did to me. Um, first thing was being aware of uh, that which was within my power to change. The second thing that happened um, in dealing with the failures and setbacks, I came to understand something about grief. Um, it was actually in the middle of this dark time. I was um, I was led to, um, I'm forgetting her name right now. It'll come to me, a psychologist from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to remember, who wrote a wrote writing and uh, she has a theory of uh, grief. Um, called ambiguous grief. And so I was listening to a, I was listening to a podcast where she was describing this and I'm walking, this is a year and a half ago, I'm walking through my neighborhood and I'm weeping as she's describing the, this idea that much grief has no closure. Mm -hmm. And um, we desperately want closure. We wanna bring something to the to an end. And I realized when I look back on whether it was some traumas that I had experienced or traumas that I had actually caused on people, I had needed to accept the fact that I probably was not going to get closure. And even the knowledge of that br brought a level of awareness and healing that I hadn't before. So I stopped trying to talk, cross the T's and dot the I's and just accept with a, some level of grace what had gone before and just understand that the loss is ambiguous. There's not going to be closure on this and be able to move on with a level of joy. Hmm. You know, that reminds me of when, when I was pastoring and you were coaching me and I was going through some tough stuff and you had shared with me a phrase and I, we were talking about before we started the podcast that you got to learn to live with a low grade fever of sadness. And when you first told me that I, I rejected it, I didn't want to hear it. I was like, right. oh, I want to be happy and positive. I'm yeah. an optimistic person. But then the more I reflected, the more I realized that 
if I don't, I, I'm I'm going to make everything bigger than what it needs to be, yeah. and emotionally, it's too much. Or hold or hold my life and other people's life to uh, the to to host to a hostage to eliminating that that low grade fever of sadness. Mm -hmm. um, the fact of the matter is sometimes our sadness spikes. We have terrible tragedies and traumas that happen to us. Uh, those are horrible. But for most of us, the world is not a wonderful place many times. And our relationships end up going south sometimes. And you, you're left with a level of sadness. It's not like you're debilitated. You get up and you go about your world and you do your work. But there is this low-grade fever, just like if you had a physical low-grade fever, you could go about your life. And when I came to a realization about that, and you, you couple that realization with the idea of ambiguous grief, ambiguous loss. Mm. It's a powerful, some of, you, some of you people say, well, that's really depressing. <laughs> that's just depressing. Ambiguous loss and a low-grade fever of sadness. What's, you know, why go on? Well, that's the world. You know, not to wax spiritual, uh, spiritual or scriptural here, but I mean, Jesus was a man of uh, sorrows and he was acquainted with grief, right? That's mm -hmm. what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Acquainted with sorrows. Um that's you and me. That's everybody. Mm -hmm. So the fact is, I can either shake my fist at the world and become bitter about that and aggrieved about everything, or I can say, that's the way it is. Now, how do I live my life even feeling the way I do? Kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Uh, every time he talks, he, he, he he's, has a way of phrasing it like life is horrible. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you can get through it. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. I mean, life is horrible. Life is hard. Life is wonderful. Life is joyous. Um, that's the way life is. And, you know, part of my, part, what I had to realize about myself, part of my personality is if you ask me how am I feeling at any given time, I'm not positively sure. You know, there are, there are some people that can tell you, oh, I feel this or this. The way I'm wired is sometimes I'm not aware because I try to do all the things around myself to avoid having to answer the question, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. So when I started to become aware and realize, wow, that hurts. Um, I can either, I can either, like I said, I can shake my fist at the world or I can let it form me and let integrity grow even in the midst of the sadness. Thank you for honestly sharing that you don't deal with failure well. That's really helpful to hear because I, I think a lot of people that are driven, I know for myself, I, I want, like you, I want to move on to the next thing. I want to just, um, and sometimes have a hard time being able to process something and, and then have a hard time even being able to process my failures mm -hmm. uh, and to just look at it and say, okay, it's a mistake and learn from it and grow. Mm -hmm. and because I, I don't, I don't, you know, it caused maybe a lot of pain for me or somebody else or others. And, and it's hard to, you know, be able to sometimes acknowledge that. So I think it's just really helpful to hear you acknowledge that. And, and that that's a, that, that's part of it sometimes as a leader. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so let me ask you, how do you, um, if you were to just talk about people, um, just people in general, how would you say you deal with people just on a daily basis? What, what's kind of your mode of the way you work? Um, so I'm going to talk, talk about currently, currently my perspective of people, because this is, uh, this is. I've come, this is partly, I'm not going to say this is new, but um, I'm, I'm becoming aware of that I, that I am very pro human being. There are some people I don't like. Uh, and there are certain people who believe things that I certainly don't like. 
but I do, I, I do, I am pro-human being, and I believe that every single there is not a person who is not born without a specific call on their life. And knowing that every single human being has a unique capacity to matter in this world informs how I see every human being. And I think my personal opinion is the four most, well, the five most important words you could ever say to a human being are what I see in you. And I have tried to make it, it doesn't happen 100% of the time, but I've tried to make it a habit that whoever I'm interacting with, I try to at least say, you know what, here's what I appreciate about you. Um, even that little habit has caused me to look at people differently. Uh, I'm very pro-human being. Um, and so now that does not mean I like everybody, but I do see the inherent possibilities and the call in every single human being. I want to come back to that in a second, but let's address the other side of it. So how do you deal typically with challenging people or, or even people that maybe seem to be against you or enemies <laughs> uh, or just really challenging people? Uh, yeah. So when you're a pastor, which I was for 42 years, you have to, you have to handle those people you're not allowed to be vindictive. You never allow, and you're hardly allowed to call people out. And some of that is your own pressure because if you call somebody out, then word gets around and they don't like you and they leave your church. And, and so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of among pastors is this struggle to not tell the truth mm. about a human being. Um, I'm not that way anymore. Um, now I, if I'm, if I'm with working with a client, I don't pull any punches with them. I call the, I call them out what I see, because honestly, if they hired me to work with them, I don't think they want me to sugarcoat their life. They want transformation. Mm -hmm. So I'm at a different place right now. I do not feel I'm not as afraid of people as I used to be. When you're a pastor, you can be very afraid of people because of what they can do to you and your reputation and your church. Um, and I want, if I were to go back and do it all over again, I think I would mitigate that. I wouldn't want to be as uh, timid as I was with people for 42 years. I'm just not timid anymore. Does that make sense? Yep, sure does. You know, it's interesting when I read scripture and, and look at the different leaders, uh, especially that started the church, Paul and Peter, I think most of us would get ticked off at them all the time. Uh, because they would say it like it is sometimes with people and we like their teaching now from afar but then in person that can be hard and as a pastor that's tough because you're shepherding you know a group of people and and i probably did not manage that super well because i usually was pretty blunt and direct uh in a loving way but blunt and direct and that sometimes did cause some painful relational mm -hmm. fallout and my wife and i navigating that you know emotion of those things and um, and, but I see it too. And, and I, I think that's true even in definitely in the church, but I think it also isn't true often in any work relationship with people where sometimes people are hesitant to call out something that's wrong or, or hurting others or whatever. And everybody lives with it and just yeah. manages around it. Right. And, and lives with a certain level of unhealth uh, mm -hmm. because of the potential, uh, uh, of the backlash. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
so let me go back to the other side of you being pro-human. And so, you know, let me just say thank you for being as far in it, 40 years of ministry, 40-some years of ministry, 67 years of life, and you still love people. That's a pretty good sign about your heart because we can get soured, you know, in life. Oh, yeah. So because you do see potential in people, what do you look for the most? Uh, I think that the, the hidden treasure of a person is in their life story. Mm. Um, many times when we look at a human being for their potential, we look at their skill set. Some of it's learned, some of it's innate. Or we look at their personality, um, which are both hugely important. And we neglect their life story, which has shaped a lot of their, their approach to the world. Here's a, here's a for instance. I was at a dinner this a couple of days ago, and I was I met a young woman for the first time. We're we're part of a team of an organization, and uh, she told me, um, "I said, what do you do?" And she said, "Well, I'm a nutritionist." And I said, "What's how, what's the journey to become a nutritionist? How did that how did that happen?" And she said, "Well, I had an eating disorder when I was young, mm. and." It was, I use that as an illustration to say that a lot of the benefit that we bring to the world or the strengths that we bring to the world comes directly out of something that in many cases was painful or hard. And so when a person can look back on their life journey, I, I, a lot of my clients, I tell them, look, the bottom line is let's start with your life journey. And my guess is we're going to find the seeds of your calling might going back as, or as far back as your childhood for something that you've had to endure, to go through, even somebody that's hurt you. Um, and along with the good things, too. So I, th I think the inherent possibilities in a human being start in their life journey. That That's the key. That's the key. Along with their, of course, their skill set and personality. But it's their life journey. Yeah, it makes me think of all the characters in Scripture and their life is described through their story. And often, you know, there is some painful things and often the greatest impact they have. And the greatest growth comes through facing that pain and yep. then, you know, encouraging other people. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's key. So as you think about, you know, you're, you're being driven, being a very passionate, very uh, person that has some purpose and direction in your life. How would you say you invest your time? Do you, now, have, do you have a filter of how you go about your days and weeks of the way you invest your time? Yeah, and that's a that's a and it's a really good question because it deals with that what I was talking about the areas of my life that I'm concerned that I evaluate this the that third area which is order and focus. Um, um, the most people with the advent of the smartphone and the ongoing development of screen time are completely unfocused. Um, the average CEO gets 15 uninterrupted minutes a day. Um, and so knowing that um, what I have worked to do is create rhythms in my life so that I know that I'm not gonna get stuck without any uninterrupted time for focus and devoting my life to what's important. So the two things that are sacrosanct, three things that are sacrosanct, no. Two things that are sacrosanct is my early morning time of attentiveness, uh, usually about an hour. And then uh, my 
the day of the week that I most look forward to is Thursday because I schedule nothing on Thursdays. And on Thursday, it is my writing day. It is my thinking day. And every, just about every Thursday, um, I will go to my favorite coffee shop in downtown Indianapolis. I'll spend my first two hours getting my head around what I need to be about. And then I go to the Central Library in downtown Indianapolis, and I spend most of the rest of the day writing and thinking. That has been um, one of the greatest joys in my calendar. So those are purposely, intentionally set aside those morning blocks of time and then the Thursday block of time um, has been transformative for me. Um, that's how I manage uh, my life. And I would say third, although because my wife just got a new job, um, it's a little more difficult, is the third thing in order of importance is to have dinner with my wife mm. every day. Um, Oh, and I, what am I thinking? And on Tuesdays, because I'm self-employed, I can do this, but I take all of Tuesdays, it's grandpa day uh -huh. <laughs> um, uh, with my grandkids. And so I just, I'm down on the floor all, or, or the children, if you want to find me, Tuesday mornings, go to the Children's Museum in Indianapolis, and you'll probably find me there with, <laughs> my, uh, with Henry. Um, so those, those are the times that I intentional, so that I can focus on the things that are important. Yeah, I heard you voice things that you love things that you're passionate about things that bring energy to you mm -hmm. um, how important it is to protect those things because nobody else knows that about you nobody else is in charge of that, that that's your, do it. that's your no it's just it's you i mean if you don't do it who's going to mm -hmm. my hobby is cooking um and so i do most of the cooking in the house and so um i look forward to that uh, it is my joy and it is my, it is my mental escape. It allows me to give myself to something that has, uh, that has an artistic end to it that I can step back and say, look at that, look what we created. Yeah. That's important to me too. Would you say, as you think about and reflect about some of the seasons of your life, when you were really energized, very on your game with your spirit, um, maybe a growth mindset, a, a confidence of faith, an abundant belief in God and yourself. Would you say that those are probably times when you managed that rhythm well versus times when you didn't? Not necessarily. Okay. No, not necessarily. I'm managing my rhythms now better than at any time in my entire life. Hmm. When, I'm lead when I was leading an organization, especially a fast-growing organization, um, there were times where I could wrap my hand, my head around the idea of the order and focus of my life. And there are other times that I was out of control. Um, it was not consistent. I would have spasms of consistency where my I would rise up and say, I can't do this anymore. And I would go through a season of managing my life in a way that brought order. Uh, but then because I'm a zealot and I need to take the next hill, well, sometimes you throw caution to the wind and that includes your time and your, and I mean, sometimes really Fred, I was out of control. Uh, my, my life was consumed by my work. I'm not proud of that. And if I were to go back and do it again with my mindset that I have now, I certainly would do it differently. So let me ask you a couple questions that, that leads into some questions about your personal faith. And, and I want to ask them to you. Um, it, I know you were a pastor, but I still think just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you automatically are able to integrate your personal faith in what you do. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I want to ask you uh, first, 
even though you were doing church work, how did you integrate your personal faith in what you did? Um, just a religious activity. Yeah. Um, again, it, you know, this is a, this is, there's a continuum of doing this poorly and on the other end, sucking at this, you know, it's like doing it terribly. So I wasn't always, I, I wouldn't say that I always integrated my personal faith with my corporate faith. Um, but if I did, and when I did, which was frequent, um, it was because I was attentive to it. Um, integrating my personal faith with my corporate faith was not going to happen serendipitously. It's not going to was not. It was never going to happen accidentally. It had it had to happen in my life because I intentionally set about to make sure that my walk with Jesus was full of integrity and not because not because of a corporate mandate. And so I had to pay attention to that. And so the way I managed my own personal faith is um, I always had, you know, entrepreneurs, I think the best entrepreneurs are readers, right? Okay, so they're always reading. I made sure, most of the time, I made sure that I wasn't just reading trade books regarding how to pastor well. I also have been always interested in personal spiritual growth. Hmm. Um in a way, looking for spiritual direction from, not from people right in front of me, but from writers. Mm -hmm. So I gave myself, I, I, my, spiritual, my own personal spiritual direction was important to me. Mm -hmm. And I still maintain that. Although I'm, it's a long story, but I'm probably at a little different place than I was spiritually than I was even three years ago. So, um, but still my own personal faith is crucial. So, you know, obviously a big piece of our personal relationship with God is our prayer life of just how we relate to God, how we talk to him, how we listen, how we, those rhythms. Can you talk to us about what that looks like for you and how you learned to implement that to work for you? Because everybody's yeah. different. It's pretty simple. Um, I'm not a big, I'm not, I've never been a list guy. Uh, I have a friend, a mentor, a co-mentor that I meet with monthly that literally I don't, I don't he must have a catalog for a brain because he's constantly writing down prayer requests and, and he remembers them all. I mean, he's a savant when it comes to that. I'm anything but a prayer savant. Um, my prayer life is simply managed through my journal. So I journal every day, just about every day. And so if you read my journal, you would find a prayer. Now, my journal is going to sometimes, if you read this morning's, it would probably sound hopeful. If you had read yesterday's, it would sound like I am bitter. Um, I was aggrieved. Uh, that The journal before that might have felt like an imprecatory psalm where I was calling down God on somebody. Um, but my journal is probably the, the most interesting expression of my prayer life. So a side note, I was cleaning up part of our basement for a reason, and I found a box of all my journals for I don't know how many years. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm going to throw them away. And I'm talking dozens and dozens of journals. And I couldn't. And I'm still wondering, because I don't go back and look at them. So I stood there looking at them, opened up the box, and I'm looking, why should, should I go back and look at them? And I thought, no, there's something just mystical here, because in my hand was this box full of prayers. Um, I probably won't throw them away, because that's what they are to me. 
I love to research a lot about science and how our brain works. And one of the things that they talk about is how when you write, multiple levels of your brain are working and it has a ability to access the subconscious parts of our brain yeah. and reprogram some things in our life. Yeah. And, and there's a real depth to that. And I, 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 I hear you on, I have journals too, and I don't go look at them either, but I, I have this fond, I can look at a date of a journal and I can know the season of what yeah. I was dealing with. One habit I used, I had for years was um, I would every, the last week of December of every year, I would read through all my journal entries of that year. Um, I have stopped doing that. I probably need to go back to do that. And, and honestly, once the pandemic hit, and when, once I stepped away from pastoral ministry, I'm not positively sure I want to read my <laughs> <laughs> entries. entries. Um, maybe I should, because I would see how far I've come. But man, um, I was honest. Have you ever, tell me if you've ever experienced this, because this is something I've experienced like repeatedly with journaling thoughts and prayers. I'll be writing it and I'll be, whether I'm venting something or whether I'm struggling with something or stuck or wh whatever I'm voicing with my writing, as I'm writing it, it's almost like the answer comes to me. Yeah. Like there's a clarity of mm -hmm. what's going on here in me. Mm -hmm. That happens. Oh yeah, I mean, and I mean, theologically, I what the what I uh, believe what I believe is happening is, um, I believe that God is within me. He is He is within my mind and soul and mm -hmm. who I am. And so when I'm expressing something that's coming out of my mind, He's gonna. I think there are times when God is going to piggyback on my thoughts, and uh, maybe reframe my thoughts as they're coming out of me. And I like the one of my favorite passages of scripture is Genesis 1-2, where it said, it says the spirit of God was brooding over the creation. Um, the word is hovering in a lot of translations, but it really means brooding. It's the idea of a, of a mother hen brooding over chicks. And so I, I frequently think of God brooding over me, fussing over me, um, and wanting to engage with me in whatever I'm thinking about. So <clears throat> we've talked about a lot of different leadership things that you've experienced over the years. What would you say your greatest challenge that you faced as a leader was? Past? Historical? Yeah. Um, a couple come to my mind. Uh, dealing with disappointment. Usually it was a human being. Dealing with rejection. I think there are times where uh, these are some, I don't know which is the greatest, probably the second one, dealing with rejection. That's probably the greatest challenge. But there were also the challenge of finding myself in situations where I was completely bereft of what to do. You know, when you're at a murder scene of one of your congregants, and his his family member was just murdered, and you're trying to help figure that out, or you're a suicide uh, helping. Some, those are those are mo those are challenges of a whole other kind, you know. Um, but I think the ones that probably rejection every every pastor 
has a thousand tiny traumas of rejection that they've had to process. And they can become one big honking pile of trauma um, if they're not dealing with it. And there were times I didn't deal well with it. So I'm gonna say rejection, biggest change, biggest challenge. So Dave, you work with a lot of leaders and in lots of different fields and um, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, um, people that just have a lot their shoulder in their uh, what do you see most when you meet with them? And and maybe what's unique about um, about those types of people that you've noticed? Uh, they're all lonely. Every one of them. And when I say lonely, it's not like they don't have people around them. But the isolation of being a senior leader of an organization is something that they're really not, they feel it intuitively. And some of them feel guilty bringing it up. And some of them are bitter because of it. They're all isolated. And um, feel to a certain extent that that leadership in, a, in an organization, especially senior leadership in an organization, is something where they feel completely on their own. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. What is your number one piece of advice you would give to leaders that feel that way? Well, admit it, first of all. And then um, decide what decide whether you can decide whether you can continue without being aggrieved. And then the third thing is work on the patterns that will um, that will fill your tank, even though because most leaders have a have a bucket with a hole in the bottom and any energy they have or vitality is drained out by so many other things. But what will what will refill your tank? So those are the things that I'm when I'm working the executives I'm working with. Those are the things I'm helping them with. A few other questions in the time we have um, that I wanted to get to. One of them is. We're talking about mostly people that are very driven, and you can't turn that off. People that are driven, if you try, it just doesn't seem to work. They're, they're, mm -hmm. You find something to yeah. turn that drive towards. Yeah. What would be your best advice of how to stay grounded or humble within your drivenness, but yet to still not feel bad about your drivenness and to embrace it, but yet not let it get out yeah. of place. I would, I, and I, I know I'm a broken record here, but I think as, if you're aware of that, that's half the battle. Mm -hmm. Are you aware that you're driven? Are you aware that people can't keep up with you? Are you aware that sometimes you wear people out? Are you aware that you can be oblivious to what's going on? Are you aware of those things? Let's start there. Secondly, can you toughen up your skin to take critique? And along with that, can you create a system of people around you who will give you unvarnished critique? Um, you take those two things and awareness and, and basically leads even somebody who is like can laugh at themselves. Um, and 
yeah, someone who could laugh themselves and have people who are not afraid to tell you how you're coming off. I mean, that's right there. I mean, if you if we could get if we could get driven people just to adopt those two behaviors, it would it would they could continue to lead their organizations because there would be the safety net around them. So I've got a few other last ones I really want to get to that I think sometimes trip people up that are driven entrepreneurial leaders. Uh, first one, how do you balance family? Balance what? Family. Family? Yeah, when you're like that. Uh, well, you don't balance it. You have to devote yourself to it. Um, you're, you have to give your... You, and the idea of quality time, I have quality time with my family, not quantity time, that's a load. That's just not true. You have to devote your time to your family. Then you can devote your time to your business too. Um, so it's not balanced, no. It's a matter of prioritization. That's what I think. It's interesting, I uh, probably, 25, 30 years ago before I planted uh, my church in Fishers, I'd read Andy Stanley's book, Choosing to Cheat. It's a yeah. small, small little one. And basically his premise is we don't have time for everything. And so we cheat something and most people will cheat their family versus business yeah. or their career or their success. Yeah. And I remember uh, that was before I planted in 99 and I made a decision that I was going to um, put my marriage and then my uh, family first. And still to this day, ah, like 20 years later, when I pray, I go through the Lord's Prayer and I, and I, when I'm praying the submission part of the Lord's Prayer, I first um, pray not for like what I'm doing with my work, it's my personal relationship with Christ. And then it's my wife because I, I married her. I made a decision mm -hmm. and that is, uh, and, and that believing that if you invest in that relationship, God can make the difference on the other things, but you can't replace a husband. And right. then the same thing with my kids. And then I get to my career of what I do yeah. uh, in things. And that was really, really helpful to hear that. And when he talked in his book, he said, you know, I made that commitment and there were certain nights that I was not going to be gone and certain things I was going to commit to. And that meant that if my success was less, I was good with that because for me, yeah. If I don't have success in my relationships that matter most, it really doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, and I would I would add to that uh, if if the way that you manage your life is in the moment, and you have a choice in the moment between um, work, family, whatever, in the moment your family is going to lose every time because something is going to be compelling, and you will turn to your family and say, you know what, I can't avoid it. I've got to do this thing. Mm -hmm. But if when you say put your family first, which means you get your calendar out and you put them in your calendar first, and that's sacrosanct, that's how you put your family first. Yeah. It has to; they have to be on their calendar before you calendarize or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. If you wait till the moment, the moment of choice, they're going to lose every time. Kind of like the same thing with dealing with your weaknesses and your insecurities and temptations. If you wait until the moment versus plan ahead and have a game plan, you're done. <laughs> Most people, most people who are successful entrepreneurs really can, they're pro, they are the absolute masters 
of flying by the seat of their pants and making decisions on the fly. Um, they can whip up energy and passion and ideas in a heartbeat and get things moving. And as a result of that, everything else gets left in the dust. The only way for a successful driven entrepreneur to have a healthy life with strong well-being is they have to be intentional ahead of time to choose to do the things that their natural inclination is not inclined to do. Yeah, those healthy safeguards. So last couple of questions, how do you view influence? Um, influence is essentially, is another way to describe leadership. I believe um, the number one level of influence, you can, inf you can influence people with a gun. You can influence people with an angry voice. You can influence people with intimidation. You can influence people with rules. You can, you can influence people to do just about anything you want them to do if you choose the right form of, of influence. But this most long-lasting influence comes through spiritual authority. And I don't mean spiritual in terms of religious. I'm talking about the kind of authority that a person possesses, that when they speak, you will pretty much do what they suggest because you have given them spiritual authority in your life. Now, if a person wants to have spiritual authority in other people's life, it will be because they have integrity in every other area else of their life. So I tell people it's like a, I call it the ladder of influence. And again, I don't think this was originally mine. I think it was Bobby Clinton um, in the making of a leader. If the top rung is influence, the second rung down is spiritual authority. The next rung down is integrity. And the only way to develop integrity is through managing the disappointment and pain of your life in a way that makes you stronger with more integrity. So if you want influence, you go to the worst part of your life and develop a level of fiber in your life and a response, a non-bitter, open-handed approach to things that develops integrity, which will give you spiritual authority, which will give you influence. How about money? How do you view money? Uh, I like that more of it. <laughs> uh, money is money and wealth. The key is what margin do I have? What financial margin do I have in my life? If I am the key for, for me financially is to make sure that I have margin. And the only way to have margin, financial margin, is to not spend more than I make. That's my whole philosophy of money. If you have margin, if you do not spend more than you make, um, which means you'll have financial margin. And when you have financial margin, you can either give some away, you can save it, or you can enjoy it. That's my whole philosophy of money. And Related to that, what's your philosophy on giving? Giving? Yeah. Um, giving should always be generous. Um, it should never be out of obligation. And again, I would say, if you craft your life in a way that you have margin, you're never going to have to battle with whether I should give or not. The key to strong giving is having margin. Yeah. 
So as we wrap up, I got one last question. Mm -hmm. So if you could say one thing to the next generation of young leaders, and maybe it's something that you haven't said yet uh, that you wish I would have asked, <laughs> uh, what would you say? Um, yeah, I, it's, it's something we've been alluding to all along. Um, know why you're here. Um, know what your why is, know what your purpose is, know what your calling is. And then once you figure out what your calling is, decide what you're going to do with it vis-a-vis -vis your career. Because your calling can be integrated with your career, it can be unrelated to your career, and it can be completely identical to your career. But know what your calling is. And then you can figure out how your greatest contribution to this world can be integrated into the rest of your life. Can you tell people how they can connect with you if they have interest? Yeah, I mean, they could email me, Dave at destiny-works.com, or they go to my website. The easiest way is go to my website, which is destinyworks.com, destiny-works.com. Okay, super. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking some time. You have been an incredible mentor to mine, even though the last 10 years I haven't been in ministry and I haven't connected with you like I did when I was in ministry. Yeah. Uh, it's just so good to connect with you again and listen to you and, and hear from you. I'm a better husband when I listen to you. <laughs> my, my wife's thankful. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely a better leader. Uh, you, um, uh, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for you. So thank you for taking time. Thank you, Fred. It's a joy to be with you. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you will check out Dave Rodriguez and what he's doing. If that can make a difference in your life. And remember, my name's Fred and I'm your friend. <laughs>